as I think we'll call ourselves to order for the last of the sessions of the day, if that's okay. Thank you. Very nice. That's, that's right. Some European knocking there calls us to order. Good, ladies and gentlemen, we're um, uh, we're back for the fourth and final uh, paper of the day. Uh, this is the first day of our uh, colloquium together. Our speaker this evening, uh, Joseph Small, uh, for, for a good long time, was the director of the Office of Theology and Worship for the Presbyterian Church USA. He will be well known, I'm sure, to many of you. Um, he's attached at the, at, the, at the minute to the f uh, faculty at Dubuque Theological Seminary, uh, holds a whole range of posts attached to various boards and things. His, um, uh, his education took him through Princeton, th uh, or Princeton Theological Seminary for a time, but before that, Pittsburgh, where I suspect he may have encountered someone of whom we've been speaking today. Uh, he is the author of, of, of a number of books, the most recent of which from, from this year, Flawed Church, Faithful God. Uh, the, the topic of uh, Joseph's paper this evening, The World of the Bible, Always Strange, Forever New, Marcus Bart as Teacher. Right. Shall we welcome him to the Well, it's a particular pleasure to be talking to you at uh, this hour, a time that every speaker yearns for. <laughs> uh, late evening after a good meal and, and glasses of wine. But I am exceedingly grateful for the opportunity to talk to you about Marcus Bart, my teacher. He was my primary New Testament professor at Pittsburgh Seminary from 1963 to 1966 and later my very senior colleague, continuing tutor and constant encourager at Pittsburgh Seminary from 1968 until he left in 1973. And he's also been, without any exaggeration, my biblical and theological teacher throughout the years of my pastoral ministry, my time as director of the PCUSA Office of Theology and Worship, and in the writing I have enjoyed in blessed retirement. Now, I've had many good teachers in my time, some bad ones too, but many good teachers. But I've also been blessed by three great teachers. And I want to just say a few words about the first two of them. My first great teacher was Miss Dolores Olirsic, my high school English teacher and drama coach. She took us through all of the curriculum's requirements but what could have been grinding obligation for us was transformed by her palpable pleasure in the way that words created worlds. She didn't just stick to the curriculum. She had us read all the things we were supposed to read, but she also slipped us on the side, Faulkner and Hemingway, even the novels of uh, Dashiell Hammett, mystery novels. And she took great pleasure in talking to us about these black market books that she had given us. But I want to talk just a little bit longer about the second great teacher, Wendell Dietrich, professor of religious studies at Brown University. And my encounter with him was dumb luck, or what I later learned to call it the providence of God. <laughs> I did not grow up in the church. My only formal exposure to religion occurred in a church youth group I attended briefly 
in order to pursue the lovely Beverly. At any rate, my academic life at Brown focused on political studies in preparation for law school. My senior year was packed with difficult courses, constitutional law, foreign policy, and political philosophy. So I was in desperate need of an easy course. And everything I knew about religion indicated that a course in religious studies would do nicely. So I registered for Wendell Dietrich's course, History of Christian Thought. It was not an easy course. It demanded significant time and energy from the 15 or 20 students in the course, but particularly challenging for one who had no Christian background. But I found it fascinating reading Clement and Ignatius and Polycarp, on to Justin, Tertullian, Irenaeus, Athanasius, all the way through to Augustine. And in those writers, I encountered a way of looking at the world which was totally foreign to me, but fascinating. I found a way of thinking about myself that was unusual and challenging. Now, Wendell Dietrich's careful attention to the texts that we were reading and his not quite concealed commitment to the truth of what they were saying was exhilarating. And I signed up for the second semester. Now, it was clear to Professor Dietrich that all of this was new to me. And so he offered to meet with me privately, helping me to understand the background of what I was reading and perceive the internal and external issues that my new patristic acquaintances were dealing with. And he also gave me some modern theological books to read. Two that I remember were Karl Barth's Dogmatics and Outline and Bonhoeffer's Discipleship. He was interested in me. One day, he asked me if I would consider deferring my entrance into law school for a year and study theology full time. He told me about Rockefeller scholarships for people considering ministry. Now, I was a pagan, but an honest one. <laughs> and since I had no intention of being a minister, I just said, no, thank you. But he continued to encourage this one-year option, which I began to explore. Now, he wanted me to study at Yale, and if that didn't work out at Union, but somehow, for reasons I don't understand, I thought I should go to a church school. Somehow, I knew that Professor Dietrich was a Presbyterian, so I decided I would go to a Presbyterian church school for a year to study theology. And after dismissing Princeton out of hand, <laughs> I ended up at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Now, Wendell Dietrich cared deeply about his discipline, and he cared deeply about the faith that his discipline grew from. Irenaeus and Augustine and Aquinas and Calvin were not simply historical figures whose thought should be understood, analyzed, and mastered, but people to learn from, to argue with, and enjoy. That's what he wanted for his students as well, because he cared at least as much about us as he cared about his discipline. 
which brings, you to, brings me and you to Marcus Bart. I've told you a bit about Dolores O'Leersick and Wendell Dietrich because when I encountered Marcus Bart in my first semester at Pittsburgh, I already knew what a great teacher was. And it didn't take me long to recognize this in Marcus Bart. When I was asked to participate in this conference, I went to the storage area in my basement, found an old metal box that I had not opened for 40 or 50 years, and pulled out my seminary notebooks to look back over the notes I took in his New Testament introduction course and then later in a seminar in Colossians. As I read through my notes, it struck me what I did not know then, but much of what he taught, he was writing and publishing in The Broken Wall, Conversation with the Bible, Justification, Acquittal by Resurrection, and Israel and the Church. Now this rediscovery enables me to do more with you than simply talk about Marcus Bart. I can give you a few of his own words. Early in my notebook is a skeletal account, notes, of an image that Marcus uses to open the book, Conversation with the Bible. He writes, when two people are absorbed in a conversation and a third man happens to pass by and hear their words, surprising things can occur. Whether they talk in a whisper or shout at each other, whether the third man understands all or only a part of what they say, if they happen to be talking about him, his interest is excited as by no other kind of conversation. Imagine that the two men are doctors discussing his chances to live, or a prosecutor and a defense attorney discussing a case in which he is intimately involved, or only gossips who pretend to know it all. In any case, he says, the third man arrested inadvertently by the specific personal relevance of the conversation will be touched in a unique way by references to his father and his mother, his children, and he may be cut to the quick by their evaluation of his past conduct, his strengths and weaknesses, his public self, his hidden secrets, and his future. Now, Marcus could simply have said that the Bible is a dialogue between God and humans that we may overhear and realize it's a conversation about us. But that's not the way Marcus taught. He loved to use vivid, often elaborate word pictures to engage us, not simply to make a point and then move on. He often used a similar image, one that I repeated more often times, more times than I could count in my own preaching and teaching. The point was the same, but the image was about reading someone else's correspondence rather than overhearing a conversation. The unique power of the Bible, Marcus said, flows from the fact that the biblical words are words of love between God and man. A love that comes from God is his free gift, a gift that is often repudiated, betrayed, forsaken by man, but it is nonetheless invincible. The reading of the Bible, therefore, 
should be compared to the reading of love letters rather than the study of a law book. Now, his consistent approach in teaching was to do far more than inform us. He wanted to draw us in to the unpredictable, surprising things the Bible has to say about who God is and who we are, what God has to do with us, and what we have to do with one another. Now, this approach is evident also in his small book, Justification. As we heard this morning, the book is not a systematic treatment of Paul's understanding of justification, but rather an experiment in what he called an admirer's narration of the miracle of justification. And the experiment takes the form of a five-day courtroom drama. Marcus's choice of drama to display justification was more than an illustrative device. Because as he wrote, it's not for nothing that the Gospels and the Book of Revelation, the liturgies of the Eastern Church and the Passion Plays of the Western Church, and the works of a writer like Dorothy Sayers have given dramatic expression to the drama of Christ. And for Marcus, the dramatic interplay of God and ourselves could best be envisioned, expressed, understood, and appreciated by drawing us into that performance. Marcus's teaching drew me in, and it was partly due to Marcus that I never got to law school. Another evidence of the providence of God. Now, none of what I've said should be taken to imply that Marcus's teaching slighted difficult questions in the history of interpretation or the demanding work of exegesis. In my second year, I was in his seminar in Colossians. Well, actually, his seminar in Colossians 1, 1 through 2, 6. <laughs> I was reminded of the snail's pace of our Colossians study <laughs> last year as I read through the recent translation of Karl Barth's Göttingen Lectures on Ephesians, which only made it through the first chapter before a term concluding race through chapters two through six in one lecture. At the beginning of his sixth lecture, Karl Barth made an announcement. In response to the complaints that we are moving too slowly, I would point out that the text we are considering is not easy to interpret. Our goal is to understand the text. We have no control over how far we go or do not go when it is a matter of understanding something from the word. Now, I don't remember that any of us complained about Marcus's pace. I think we knew we were not there for a survey course in Colossians. We were there to learn how to grapple with the text, not to master it, but to stand under it. Toward the end of his life, when he was in ill health and with help from one of his doctoral students in Basel, Marcus completed his Anchor Bible commentary on Colossians with an introduction of 133 pages, followed by 357 pages of exegesis. 
And it's worth noting that his original assignment from Doubleday was to produce a single commentary on Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. What he produced, of course, was two thick volumes on Ephesians and one on Colossians. But Marcus Barth knew that only a very few of his students would become academic biblical scholars. Almost all intended to be pastors, as he was a pastor for 13 years. And his intent was to equip us to be parish pastors and teachers who knew that the scriptures were conversations between God and humans, and that these dialogues were about us and about our congregations. I don't remember him saying these words from conversation with the Bible, but they're characteristic of his encouragement. He wrote, exegesis is first of all, the endeavor to tell people in need of help what the Bible says of their shepherd and helper, Jesus Christ. And since it is undertaken to meet and overcome fear and danger and flagrant weakening of faith, exegesis is a necessary enterprise, not a luxurious pastime. So Marcus wanted us to know that the primary purpose of exegesis is faithful proclamation, not a scholarly article in the Journal of Biblical Literature. And for that reason, it required more of us, not less. Now, I can't find in my notes the exegetical method that he recommended to us, but I'm sure I remember it correctly because I tried to follow it throughout my years of pastoral ministry and beyond. First, he said, read the passage in English, jotting down what strikes you as odd. The Bible doesn't simply talk about the way things are, but about God's way in the world. It doesn't tell us what we already know, but always what is new and often strange. So he said, first of all, jot down questions you have about public puzzling features of the text, words or phrases or obscure reference or bizarre characteristics. Second, read the surrounding material. In the case of a brief letter, read the whole letter. But in the case of a longer book, the before and after of the relevant section. The Bible, he always stressed, is not an anthology of brief snippets, but a collection of writings, each of which has a purpose that is served by its parts. This, by the way, has become particularly important now that the common lectionary has been adopted. As others have said, two cheers for the lectionary. <laughs> so does the larger context clarify or exacerbate the oddities and questions from your first reading? How does the context deepen the passage? Third, translate. Marcus's conviction that we shouldn't rely on the renderings of others, usually committees, is even more important now that English translations multiply exponentially. And unfortunately, they multiply exponentially at just the time when the teaching of Hebrew and Greek is being reduced to month-long intensives or abandoned altogether. So 
Does the Greek illuminate, alter, deepen understanding of the text, or does it just lead to more confusion? Fourth, does the text bring to mind something from literature or film or history or politics or other aspects of contemporary life? Does the text provide new angles of vision on aspects of the culture and of social problems? And fifth, now look at commentaries if you really feel you need to. That's what he said, if you really feel you need to. Because Marcus always stressed we should never begin with commentaries, never begin with someone else's take on a passage. That the views of others were only appropriate in conversation with our own views. Commentaries could challenge or confirm or deepen our own results, but they should never be substitutes for our own work. And finally, how will these words be proclaimed in preaching or teaching or writing. In Marcus's words, exegesis is the act of hearing the Bible as a call to worship God in truth. It's also the act of passing on that call to contemporaries who are living and suffering and dying. It continues the urgent invitation of prophet and priest and apostle to worship God faithfully in the face of apostasy and error, joyfully, even in persecution, patiently, hopefully, even though the time seems long. So, three specific features of Marcus's teaching were especially important to all of us who studied with him, or at least important to me. First was his consistent emphasis on the ongoing filial relationship of Christians and Jews. You know about this from his books, Israel and the Church, Jesus the Jew, People of God as well as the Broken Wall and other commentaries. I don't believe uh, that he ever taught a course on the subject or that he ever treated the matter systematically in class, but I do remember that Israel and the Church, Jews and Christians then and now were woven throughout his formal teaching and his informal conversations. They paid attention to the Old Testament, of course, and to the New Testament's myriad references and allusions to the faith of Israel. He also made sure that we were not wedded to stereotypical understandings of New Testament references to law, Jews, Pharisees, Israel, and such formulaic terms as Judaizers and works righteousness. Almost in passing, he would challenge conventional readings of passages such as Romans 9 to 11 and Galatians 3. But of course, his careful reading of texts did not confine his understanding of Christians and Jews to the dynamics of the past. In this, as with everything in the Bible, he wanted students to see scripture's trajectory arching over us on the way to its intended goal. So we were well aware of Marcus's deep engagement with the Jewish community in Pittsburgh and beyond, and that he worked regularly for Jewish Christian understanding and reconciliation. His book, Israel and the Church, consists of three addresses to Jewish audiences in Pittsburgh and Boston synagogues. Jesus the Jew, 
is two lectures given to a Jewish Christian gathering, and people of God were shaped by addresses on college campuses and conferences. And in all of these settings and all of his work with students, he avoided easy generalities, dealing instead with biblical text, subsequent history, present reality, and theological imperatives of the one people of God. Now, Marcus was not engaged in this with mere tolerance and goodwill. His conviction that Jews and Christians together are the people of God meant that, in his words, should the Christians deny their brotherhood with Israel, their solidarity with all Jews, they would, by the same token, exclude themselves from the household of God. So Marcus's teaching on Jews and Christians is perhaps the greatest gift that he gave to me. My parents' constant warnings about the evils of anti-Semitism and my college experience may have readied me to hear what Marcus had to say, but his insights challenged and deepened more than my thinking. Years later, I was called to serve a church in an affluent suburban town just outside of Rochester, New York. Brighton was at least 70% Jewish. Ours was the only Protestant church in the town. It was a Catholic parish as well. So when I arrived there, I immediately sought out a relationship with a rabbi of a large nearby synagogue, a relationship that continued for all the years I was there, uh, once a month, like clockwork, a relationship that deepened during these regular conversations. But more important, my preaching, my teaching, and programmatic initiatives, I think, though I know, helped the congregation to move toward viewing their Jewish neighbors, not as the alien town majority, but as siblings in God's family, bearing faithful witness to the one God. When I became the director of the Office of Theology and Worship, I initiated biannual formal conversations between Presbyterians and representatives of the National Council of Synagogues, leading to a book, Let Us Reason Together, Christians and Jews in Conversation. And my recent book of Ecclesiology gives two full chapters to the shared peoplehood of Jews and Christians, church and synagogue. Now, I don't know what of all of that might have happened without Marcus Bart. But I do know that Marcus Bart deepened and made more significant all of that in my life. Now, his teaching on Christians and Jews was a dramatic instance of a broader second feature of Marcus's teaching that was important to his students. His conviction that the Bible is a living word about the present, not a word from the past that might be applicable to the present, but a current word about the here and now. Again, he didn't teach a course on political theology, a term he detested, or press on us the task of being public theologians. Instead, in an elusive fashion, he regularly communicated to us what he made explicit in conversation with the Bible. Marcus's words, Exegesis faithful to the intention and character of the biblical witness 
involves the obligation and privilege of taking a stand on contemporary issues. Today, Bible interpretation is not true unless it leads to decisions regarding world peace, atomic war, integration, anti-Semitism, slum housing, and the suppression of freedom. The understanding, explication, and application of the Bible is, for this reason, a most necessary, daring, and costly enterprise. Now remember, this was before the 1960s really happened. As a church outsider, I welcomed this understanding of scripture, but for many of my church-saturated classmates, this approach required conversion, which more than a few of them were not willing to undertake. Of all my excellent New and Old Testament teachers, it was Marcus who consistently pressed upon us the contemporaneousness of the Bible. Before Paul recur, Marcus taught us that scripture does not show us the world as it is, but opens a new world in which we could live. Now, perhaps this illuminates Marcus's Swiss fascination with the ever new world of American culture. He took visible delight in using American idioms, often inter interrupting a student to ask for an explanation of a puzzling word or image. Sports terms like from out of left field or drop back and punt. Entertainment, his monologue bombed and she finished on a high note. He wanted to know where these idioms came from and how they applied. I remember remarking later on in a faculty meeting that I was not sanguine about the prospects for something or other to happen. As soon as the meeting ended, Marcus dashed over to me and asked, what does it mean for me to say that I was not bloody about the matter? <laughs> well, he was never satisfied with his use of American English, always happy to learn something new. And his interest in idioms ran alongside his interest in other bits of Americana, especially folk tales. I remember him relating, and he did this on a number of different occasions. I remember him relating an American folk song about a man who stabbed somebody else in a moment of jealousy. Afraid of the verdict that would come down at his trial, he fled and hid in the middle of the Florida Everglades where the law would never find him. Eventually, so the song goes, he was tried in absentia and acquitted on grounds of self-defense. The man was now acquitted, legally free, but he didn't know it. And since his friends could never find him, he continued to live in the Everglades, a prison of his own making. Now, he told the story of that song, learned, I think, from a student in Dubuque to illustrate to us the pastoral calling. His task, he said, was to announce freedom to people who remained in bondage because they did not know of their acquittal in Christ. And he also used the song for a somewhat different purpose in justification, where it stands as an instance of his curiosity and his eagerness to learn from students. Marcus's teaching was not confined to the classroom. I was 
privileged to be one of a small group of students he welcomed into his home. For a year, we gathered almost weekly, our little blue Nestle Greek Testaments in hand, to work our way into Galatians. It was a more freewheeling, unofficial seminar, not for credit, just for interest. And we worked on the text for an hour and a half or two hours until Mrs. Bart announced it was time for cake and tea. And it was during those breaks that Marcus sometimes talked of his pastoral experience in a Swiss town where he said it was the custom not to worship on Sundays. It was the custom to attend funerals, though. So he said, at funerals, I preached the gospel with only passing reference to the deceased. <laughs> and he also told us about frequent town fairs where he stood on a homemade wooden box housing a battery-powered microphone and preached. He also brought our attention to art in the house, including, I remember, a busy depiction of medieval Basel with a small detail of a man on a barge in the middle of the Rhine mooning Lower Basel. And when I think back on my years as a student at Pittsburgh Seminary, my most vivid, formative, enduring times are those evenings in Marcus Bart's home. Not for credit on our part, not for duty on his part, but simply for the shared joy of reading and discussing the Bible. I should note, too, that there were also evenings in Dietrich Ritchell's home, reading Augustine. But at Ritchell's home, there was no cake and tea. <laughs> he did give us cheap Liebfrau Milch while he sipped Johnny Walker black. <laughs> it was also my privilege to do a senior year of independent study with Marcus partly because of my undergraduate work in political studies, partly because of Marcus's emphasis on the social, cultural, political present of the New Testament, and partly simply because I was puzzled. I asked to do a year on principalities and powers in the Pauline epistles. Well, Marcus was more than happy with my topic and readily agreed to work with me. So for a year, I met with him every week for an hour, an hour and a half, reporting and discussing materials that Marcus had suggested or I had discovered. Not surprisingly, he had me start with the Old Testament and intertestamental material, yet it was my task to present a plan for dealing with the Pauline material, including secondary sources. Marcus then filled in my blanks, and each week I conveyed my insights and my preliminary uh, conclusions, sometimes in writing, sometimes orally. And as work progressed, I submitted drafts of sections in advance of our time together. And when I look back on those times in his seminary office, I'm just amazed that he was so generous with his time and his interest. He was teaching courses, he was writing books, he was speaking at conferences and synagogues and churches. He was giving time to the denomination, including work on what became the Confession of 1967, and yet he gave so much of himself 
to me and to other students. He didn't have to do it, but he did it because he was more than a scholar. He was a teacher. So toward the end of the year, I plunked my thick pile of typed pages on his desk, a bit apprehensive. And sometimes late, sometime later, it was returned to me with copious comments throughout all the pages, some of which I could read. <laughs> some comments were appreciative. Some suggested the need for fuller documentation. Some pointed out directions for future work. And some were sharply critical. I'm going to read you a small portion of his summary remarks, not to tell you something about me and my work, but to show you something admirable about Marcus Bart. This is what he wrote. Well done, Joseph Small. So far, so good. While I heartily disagree with some of your conclusions, the way in which you sought and reached them is so carefully followed the separation, combination, and exhibition of different strands of arguments so beautifully made, the results are so stimulating that you deserve full compliments. Whew. And then he added, toward the end of this long page of comments, I really would have liked, on the basis of this year's work of yours, to continue working with you on this topic to improve and buttress your results. The comments continue, but it's enough to display several qualities of Marcus Bart's teaching, evident in written and verbal comments to all of his students, not just to me. He not only recognized and complimented good work, he indicated what he found good about it. He took time to spell out features he found admirable, and in doing so, he helped us to understand better what we had done encouraging us to continue honing our skills. He did not hesitate to indicate his disagreement with elements of our work, including our conclusions, but even then he could express appreciation for a bad argument well made. And when he disagreed, he would let us know why, encouraging us to sharpen our arguments and strengthen our results. I can remember him smiling saying to myself and others, make your arguments stronger. Maybe then you will convince me. <laughs> to Marcus, the conclusion of a lecture, the last page of a term paper, the close of a course was never the end. There was always more terrain to travel, more discoveries to be made, and he was always willing to accompany us on the journey. You know, to this day, when I picture Marcus in my mind's eye, it's always with his eyes open wide in delight, a smile on his face, expressing his joy in something a student said, or something a student had discovered, or something he just found in the Bible. Well, in preparation for talking with you tonight, I skimmed through many of Marcus's books that I'd read over the years. And the introduction to his Colossians commentary, written near the end of his life by his translator, Astrid Beck, contains her note 
about an intensive course on the Lord's Supper he taught while visiting his good friend, David Noel Friedman, at the University of Michigan. Astrid writes, Marcus Barth's interests are diverse, and his perception of the world is keen. He relates well to people. To his surprise, this erudite man was extremely popular with our Michigan students, who were not attuned to theological issues, but who attended his mini-course in droves. We finally had to close the course, down, course enrollment at 335 students. Well, if Marcus was surprised by his reception, it was only due to his modesty. Well, I had just one more incident to relate. Sometime in my final year of seminary, I was thinking of February or March, a note from Professor Bart appeared in my campus mailbox asking me to see him in his office at a suggested time and day. Well, naturally, I wondered what I'd done wrong. <laughs> and when I arrived, Professor Bart, the only thing I ever called him when I was a student, the only thing he ever called me was Mr. Small. Naturally, I, I was wondering what was going on because there was Professor Bart and Ian Wilson was a Scot, a, a professor of homiletics sitting there. Mr. Small, Professor Bart said, you are to be an assistant minister at the Towson Presbyterian Church. Flustered and confused, I, I stammered, where, where's that? Followed by, I haven't even filled out my forms. And Professor Bart explained to me, it has been arranged. You will be a minister of adult education and after your first year there, you will be able to go to Princeton once a week to begin your graduate studies. And I'm sure I said then, but I haven't even applied. Well, yes, he said, you'll have to do that, but it's been arranged. Now that's an instance of the old boy network in operation. But I think it lamentable only because it was at the time confined to boys but it displays Marcus Bart's deep interest in his students, an interest that was not confined to our student days. And I know I was not the only student whose future Marcus cared about, and not the only student whose path he cleared. So I did go to Towson, Maryland, where I began to learn how to be a pastor. I did drive to Princeton every week to study New Testament with Bertolt Gertner, Bruce Metzger and others, but I decided to turn my attention to theology, so I wrote a thesis and picked up a THM. The thesis, a greatly expanded and much refined study of principalities and powers in the Pauline epistles. I was privileged to return to Pittsburgh Seminary first as director of admissions, then a dean of students and occasional teacher. And during those years, I continued to talk with Marcus and learn from him. And I remember relating to him my experience as the first Protestant permitted to study at St. Mary's Pontifical Seminary in Baltimore, sitting in on Raymond Brown's senior seminar on the Thessalonian epistles. Now Marcus admired Raymond Brown, 
And Marcus was particularly fond of quoting this little snippet from Brown's writings. Brown says, after all, in the scriptures, we are in the father's house where the children are permitted to play. Well, Marcus Bart played very well, and he always invited other people to play with him. 